Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Evening. And joining me as always, via the miracle of satellite technology, he rode the fast lane on the road to nowhere. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm very, very well. I'm just going to try and figure out what that tagline is from. I'm going to say Pee-Week's Big Adventure. Oh, it's close. Tonally, it's close. It's uh, five easy pieces. <laughs> yeah, very similar films. Yeah, absolutely. We've had a bit of a break last couple of weeks. Uh, we had an episode last week, but it's one we didn't really want to do. Um, and this is kind of the first episode proper of uh, 2016. Um, but before we get into our main subject of conversation... It would be remiss of us not to mention uh, what appears to be the uh, hottest of hot potatoes, uh, which is the Oscars and uh, their somewhat embarrassing reflection of modern society. Yes, as as represented by the ongoing um, hashtag slash uh, cultural conversation, Oscars so white, mm. which I kind of in a roundabout way weighed into this week and got called an SJW sheep which I think I may turn into my Twitter bio. Oh, what happened there? Do you want to recount that that, that event? Yeah, basically, this was more to do with um, Charlotte Rampling's comments on it, where after people had said that the the Oscar nominations did not reflect diversity in any way, particularly among the acting nominations, because it was the second year in a row in which there were no people of colour in any of the 20 acting slots, and also none of the kind of very prominent uh, African-American films that were released this year, such as Creed and Straight Out of Compton, were represented except for their white participants, mm-hmm. such as Sylvester Stallone for Creed and the writers of Straight Out of Compton. And uh, I made a joke about Charlotte Rampling's comments where she basically said that all of this was racist against white people, which is never a <laughs> never a strong attack to take. No. The reverse racism chant, mm-hmm. um, and I made I made a joke which was that looks like agreeing to guest star on Dexter isn't the worst decision that uh, Charlotte Rampling has ever made anymore, <laughs> which got retweeted by quite a lot of people, and um, including Matt Zollerzeist, the editor of RogerEbert.com. And as soon as he he retweeted, I was like, "Oh, my mentions are going to go to shit for the next couple of hours." And you know, most people were just kind of very positive about it they retreated it they said ha sick burn and that sort of thing and then but then there were some people who were just kind of like well what's wrong with her opinion and all this sort of stuff and uh one guy just basically said there's nothing wrong with that opinion it's just another sjw sheep and so i muted that person and have ignored anyone who has said anything negative about my incredibly benign joke mm. but uh yeah i did find it that's the first time i think i've ever had that kind of uh Actually, no, I've had stuff like that about politics before, but this was like the most benign of comments, just getting these people just insulting me, which I thought was quite amusing Mm. because only like three people did it to me, as opposed to like the many women who were talking about it on that day who got uh, endless abuse because, you know, that's what happens on Twitter. Mm. Yeah, yeah. it's, I mean, to go back to the original thing, it's, it's not even like, it's not a case of, the kind of uh, lack of representation on a base level, it's perhaps 
the kind of the, the the weight of the anger leveled towards the the last two Oscar ceremonies and the lack of diversity in them is represented by the fact that there were some amazing films uh, that featured performances from people of colour or like the direction people of colour writing by people of colour and just completely totally ignored. And this is not helped by the fact that the membership is pretty white bread. Yeah, over the, as we've said in the past, overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly old. Mm. The average age is sort of mid-60s and that there is a general sense. I mean, what also needs to be said in this is that the Oscars aren't the problem so much as they are a symptom of the problem. Mm-hmm. Because the problem is that Hollywood in general doesn't support minorities or women filmmakers. So that means come the end of the year, the films that get a bigger push from studios and agents and critics as well, critics are not are blameless in this, tend to be ones written and or directed by white people, specifically white men and mm-hmm. about white men and stories that aren't about white men, even ones that are critically acclaimed, hugely successful, such as Straight Outta Compton and Creed tend to get ignored. And the Oscars kind of reflects broader problems in the in Hollywood and in the American film industry in general. Mm. And I mean, I think it's, it's something we talked about on, a, on an old post before, but something like the best director award reflects how kind of little opportunities there are in the sense that out of all the winners in however many years we're at, I think it's 88 years this year. Yep. Um, we've had one woman winner, uh, Catherine Bigelow a few years ago and two non-white winners in Ang Lee and in Aritu. Which is, I mean, they're not good numbers, are they? No, they are kind of terrible considering the number of, you know, non-white people and women who work in the industry. You know, that they, if there was kind of fairer opportunity for all, those numbers would be a little more, probably a little fairer. But even not talking about winners, you know, the nominees would be, would there be more nominees? You know, they don't necessarily have to win, but nominations can have a huge and important impact for filmmakers. If you get nominated for an Oscar, then you get further opportunities, but also people will be more likely to check out your film, as we've seen from The Revenant, a film that has is wildly uncommercial and has grossed so far more than $100 million in America just because it's got lots of Oscar nominations. Mm. And at one point leading up to the, the kind of the eye of the storm, as it were, of this contro- uh, controversy... Certain commentators were trying to suggest that if Creed or Straight Outta Compton hadn't been nominated, it was probably down to their kind of lack of marketing flex or kind of Weinstein uh, company style savvy of like kind of generating heat and kind of award season. That's bollocks, isn't it? Uh, it's it's kind of bollocks. I do think that having the marketing muscle to make sure that screeners are sent out to every possible member and that uh, screenings are held and that you can really emphasize this is a film that you should be uh, you should be watching and that you should pay attention to does play an impact in just getting it out there but at a, at a certain point you know creed was not a film that no one saw mm. that was a very successful movie that was a continuation of a series that started with kind of a best picture winner you know it was not a film that no one had heard of and it was produced by a major major studio 
Straight Out of Compton was, you know, put out by Universal, and they definitely sent out screeners because I got one. Mm. So it's not as if they did not have support from the studios who tried to say, hey, you should actually pay attention to this stuff. It's that at a certain point, the stories must have been disregarded by the people who were actually going to vote. Mm. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it on, on the Twitters, people kind of telling their horror stories of encountering Academy members who, I mean, let's not forget there are a lot of Academy members and the majority of the Academy members, I'm sure, are kind of fine, upstanding people who try and see as many films as they can and, and vote with whatever they want. But there's kind of been stories knocking about that people have said, I remember speaking to an Academy member earlier this year and they said uh, they hadn't seen any of the films, but they were going to vote for Room because um, one of their friends told them it was really great. And in a system like that, uh, these things are bound to happen. Yeah, that is something that gets thrown out every year. And I think that is a big problem, is it? That uh, a lot of the members don't really take it that seriously. They clearly enjoy the bounty of being in the Academy, which is something that is conferred on people who are nominated in a given, are backed up by two people, or if they are nominated for or win an Oscar and then... Once they're in the club, they some of them obviously do, I think, do take it very seriously, but a lot of them are probably chances to an extent, mm-hmm. and so don't aren't as diligent about seeing it. And, and you know, there are hundreds of films eligible for nomination every year, and I think it is uh unreasonable to expect people to have watched every single one of them, particularly if they are actually working in the industry. I think it's very hard for them to do it, but I think in those instances it is uh, uh, unconscionable for someone not to have seen a film before actually voting for it yeah you know, I mean, when when i do the online film critic society awards i try and make sure that i see all of the films and then if i haven't seen a film i just don't vote for it because you know it would be uh, a dereliction of duty on my part to vote for a film i haven't seen and really fucking stupid yeah because i have no idea if that film is any good you know mm. the only thing i can do is vote on what I've seen and just voting for, you know, Brooklyn or Room because people say, oh, it's really good is uh, against the entire point of the awards, which are, you know, nominally meant to celebrate excellence. Um, But in terms of an upside to this, um, this outcry has kind of brought about some changes. Yes, they announced, the Academy announced uh, yesterday or maybe on Friday that they are introducing four major changes to the way in which the Academy operates. The first of which is that the current system, which is that once you're in the Academy, you're in the Academy for life is being scrapped and it's now going to have a 10 year term. And if in that 10 year time you are found to be active in the industry, you get renewed. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you are not active, then you are not in the Academy anymore. If you are active for 30 years, do you get, get emeritus status, but if you are emeritus, then, uh, but not active, you don't get to vote. Uh, so that's kind of the major change is that they'll be cutting a lot of people from the voting roles who have been voting in the awards, but who are not actually active members of the film industry. So that's kind of the big one is that they'll be getting rid of a lot of, again, mostly older, whiter voters. Mm. And then uh, the other kind of major change is that they've said they're going to push for uh, for more minority and women members. They're going to try and double the number of minorities and women who are currently members of the Academy, which would take those totals up from about 1,500 at this point to 
3,000 by 2020, which is the most aggressive uh, recruiting campaign they've ever done in the history of the academy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like a positive step for anything that's going to broaden the kind of uh, the range of people who are in uh, the academy. And as long as it reflects the world, you know, we live in, that's got to be a good thing, I guess. Although it just kind of feels slightly embarrassing that it had to come to this point. Mm, yeah, but like you say, that a change has been effected is to the good, even if it's angering a lot of older academy members who are going to find themselves disenfranchised, in which case, eh, I don't really care that much. You know, mm, cry me a fucking river, mate. Yeah, so uh, I think that it's good that it's happened, and I'm not sure that it's going to necessarily affect the type of films that get nominated, like... I don't know if these changes have been implemented, if Tangerine would have been nominated, but I think it definitely improves the chance that you will have more interesting choices and more voices being put into the conversation, even if in the end you still end up with certain times of films being nominated just because they are kind of considered Academy films. Mm. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the Oscars, for all the criticism we give it, do generate a huge amount of uh, revenue for films and do generate a lot of attention towards films, especially smaller films that happen to get nominated. So in a lot of respects, they are kind of a good thing, even if the way they're put together and the way they voted for and the, the status that's attached to them is ultimately pretty meaningless. So I'm kind of pleased to see that body shaken up. And also it's worth noting that the Academy do, obviously for like a month of the year, everyone obsesses over the Oscars for it, but for... 11 months of the year they do a lot of work for film preservation mm. and the money that obviously accrues from the, the high profile of the Oscars and stuff goes towards that so this shouldn't uh, hide the fact that they do a lot of very good work that is wrapped up in a ceremony that often comes into disrepute either because it's not very inclusive or just because they nominate bullshit but mm. you know it's still it is still an outgrowth of a organisation that does tremendous and important work to be fair, though, Ed, the Academy could build a fucking orphanage a day, but it still gave Crash Best Picture. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a, a sin that's going to take a lot of atoning. Mm, yeah, we're going to talk about piracy this week. It's a it's an issue that is uh, like the Oscars thing, a pretty hot topic, and I'm surprised we haven't spoken about it before in any great depth. But it's it's something that is um, forcing great change upon the industry but is also highlighting the ways in which the industry is steadfastly steadfastly kind of kind of holding on to its territory um in quite a literal sense as well it's never it, has piracy ever been this important before um or is this the kind of the greatest threat to the film industry as we know it i think it is it has never been as easy to do before mm -hmm. which i think is why it's been had such a, a cataclysmic effect on the industry. I think when piracy, and this is also true if you look at music, when piracy consisted of people having to make dodgy VHSs of films or to having people like to record albums onto cassette tape, mm -hmm. um, it was something that happened and was something that affected revenue, but it was also grossly inferior product. You know, you were going to get bad imagery. You were going to not have a particularly good time of it and it was also not easy to do or get hold of 
because you actually had to physically go and buy it from someone or mm-hmm. be given the tape. So it wasn't something that could affect too many things. But now that you're looking at piracy that is happening online, that is delivering high quality copies of films to anyone who wants to get online and online and download it you mean it means that people who have like a really good setup if they just download something put it onto their like their mac and then just use airplay to watch it on a big screen tv through an apple tv you know thing then that means you can get a near theater quality viewing of something that you don't have to pay for and it's something that literally millions of people are now able to do with impunity so yeah, the, the technological shifts have meant that it's now a bigger problem than it ever could have been back in the kind of the analogue days. Mm. And it's it's the kind of thing that, like, I don't know if you remember the old VHS advert for piracy, you know, kind of say, uh, you wouldn't steal a car. You mm. wouldn't, and it would list this kind of, and then it says, like, why would you steal a movie? And it's weird that um, kind of looking at that advert, five years on it sometimes pops up at the, the front of dvds kind of old dvds if you watch them it's like well yeah it actually means you would steal a car if it meant just clicking a button twice on your computer and no one ever coming after you for it <laughs> you know yeah what I mean? which is yeah. it seems to be the problem is it like piracy in film piracy it is something that doesn't seem to be policed or punished or have any kind of consequence yeah, uh, Mindy Kaling had a great old stand-up bit about piracy where she simply said that uh, I would steal a car if by just touching the car I got to have the car <laughs> and the person who owned the car also kept their copy of the car <laughs> and no one I knew had ever actually bought a car. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, it definitely is something that is now incredibly easy to do and also I think very difficult to just because of the way in which you know file sharing works and to do with and the sheer numbers of people who do it i think it's very very hard to go after anyone unless they are like a high volume user or if they are someone who are like in charge of the website but it's it would be just so incredibly difficult for any kind of law enforcement agency to go after everyone who's ever pirate, pirated ever and it mm. would be so costly to do it as well um I think it gets into the the whole thing, you know, if you if people know anything about the history of Scientology, the fact that the way that Scientology got uh, accredited as a religion in the US was that they essentially launched so much lawsuits against the US government that if they were to try and pers- persecute them all, it would bankrupt the <laughs> Justice Department. And it kind of is the same sort of thing here, the amount of money and time and man hours it would take to uh, per- prosecute everyone who pirates would probably completely bankrupt any department that tried to pursue it mm. plus there's um the kind of thing that no one ever mentions that to basically find out that someone has pirated something would break the law in so many ways uh, in terms mm. of kind of monitoring what people are doing <laughs> uh, yeah. on the internet which i think is uh, a gray area yeah that that is the problem the in order to per- prosecute the tr- crime, you have to break a lot of laws in the process, and that is one of the kind of major problems with the whole thing. It's something that is uh, fraught with danger at every level. Mm. And because 
piracy is so easy and because piracy is so prevalent i am continually stunned by just how many people justify it by saying well you know i mean i've heard so many excuses to as to why people do it i've heard i mean to be fair if you said uh, i'm doing it i know it's wrong um and it's but it's just so easy i'm going to do it rather than uh, well, you know, it's just there, I'll do it, it's saving me money or whatever, as a lot of people do, it's kind of that's such a bullshit reasoning. It's like, it's, there are only so many people who value the time that artists put into other things. But when it comes to films, because it's just two clicks, um, they suddenly seem to kind of throw that out of the window. Yeah, I mean, I... I think the the distinction there between the way in which people justify it is kind of key for me because I almost have more respect for people who do say, yeah, I do it because it's easy over people who try and make some sort of high-minded argument about, you know, they're fighting against capitalism or they're just kind of like, you know, I don't have the money and things like that. Whenever anyone says, you know, I just don't have the money, I'm just reminded of uh, the episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry uses a disabled toilet and when someone calls him on it they just say to him uh they just say then you wait <laughs> and that is essentially all the thing i can think of in terms of the whole piracy thing it's not there's no high-minded reason for piracy there's no justification for it. it is literally just that people don't have the patience to wait for things to become available through legal means mm-hmm. or they don't have the they don't have the inclination to actually go out and watch a thing in the setting in which it's meant to be seen. Yeah, and given that you know currently, I mean certainly in the UK, by far the most economical way of watching films is to get like one of those Cineworld passes where it's mm. like twenty quid to see as many films as you want in a month, and a film is ten pounds on its own. It doesn't really seem like that bad a deal. Uh, it's as cheap to go to the cinema now that way as it's ever been which is kind of strange so really the excuses are you know pretty hollow and ultimately just they're just bullshit people Mm. just they can just get it for free they can download it and uh, they don't have to worry about it and then that then becomes a part of their life that they don't pay for which is crazy but it doesn't really make any sense but it's just the, the the kind of uh, perspective is warped um, by the fact that, like I say, two clicks and you can have the Hateful Eight in your on your television in HD through your computer, which is nuts. And this it lead, kind of leads on to the next point that um, Hollywood studios, I mean, I don't know whether it's just because they've got too much money. In fact, no, I do. It's because Hollywood studios have got too much money they really don't help themselves, do they, in trying to make people not pirate things? Yeah, and also, yeah, just because they're a very easy target to go after. You know, people, when they do pirate, like Jurassic World or something, they think it's a huge budget film that's made by a big studio, and the studios charge a lot of money, and also theatres as well. So there is that sense of, oh, I'm just hurting this big faceless organisation, as opposed to, I am... Cost, I'm making it harder for artists to make films, particularly in the case of like um, lower budget independent films, which also get pirated a lot, as evidenced by the uh, Sundance in infographic that was released 
this week in advance of the festival, which showed that Whiplash, which was a film that played at Sundance a few years ago, was illegally downloaded 12 million times. Mm, and that's and that, about $100 million. Yeah, although I think there it said that the lost revenue would be like a million dollars, so I'm not sure how exactly that works out. But yeah, if if all of those people had paid for a ticket, then $100 million of that would have been split between you know, theatres who could then pay ushers to make sure that the film experience is actually worthwhile and and studios who could then, you know, make sure Damien Chazelle got to do whatever the hell he wanted next. You know, mm-hmm. it does have a trickle-down effect at every level, but I think in the case of low-budget independent films, that's where you can really see it being hurt the most. Mm, mm. And uh, it really kind of is reflected in, like I said, the, the studios don't help themselves, is reflected in things like The Hateful Eight, we've had in the last couple of weeks, probably three weeks ago now, the distributors of Hateful Eight decided to get into a Barney with three of the biggest distributors in the UK. And the Hateful Eight actually ended up being pulled from three cinema chains in the UK, big ones, on the same day as a screener of the Hateful Eight leaked online. I really kind of despair. It's almost like they're trying to make people not pay for it. Yeah, the the screener as well. I was talking to someone over... Christmas who had seen The Hateful Eight and um, when I was back over in the UK and they had downloaded it and it was like I I really wanted to just kind of like say why like they felt that they could do that with kind of impunity but at the same time you're kind of thinking well, they really enjoyed the film and also it's a New Year's Eve party and this could really ruin it if I just start haranguing them yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah it is, it, is uh, it was it demonstrated to me just the again the ease with which people do it and the the willingness with which people will just admit to this stuff mm. there's a weird uh crossover with people like artists who are fine with it and all kind of um will attempt to kind of justify it two people i can think of michael moore said he'd rather someone stole his movie than didn't watch it mm-hmm. um and then also uh kind of in a music sense i had an interview with the lead singer of tame impala over christmas and he said he really didn't mind if people pirated his music because ultimately, uh, if his music and his songs could connect with people, then he's happy. It doesn't really matter to them how they've done it. Now, that's very easy to say when you've sold several hundred thousand records. But if you're someone who is right at the bottom of the food chain, that kind of rings a bit it rings a bit false. Yeah, it gets to the whole Radiohead thing of like, oh, we'll just release our album online. You can pay what you want to it. And it's like, yeah, you can do that when you have... 15 years worth of album sales and live and music from live tours and from music soundtracks and things to back you up in your decision to release an album essentially for free or, you know, just for a couple of pounds. Um, if you, if you are already part of the system and you're already kind of, uh, you're, you're set, then I think that then piracy doesn't matter. But if you are starting out or if you're someone who have, whose appeal is kind of limited and you've, really kind of need every sale for it to work mm. then there's not really any decent solution there mm. but it's also the case that musicians will make money from playing live mm-hmm. which is something that you know can't be pirated i mean obviously you can do bootlegs of things but it doesn't stop people going to live gigs it just means people have a record of a gig they went to um, whereas in film there's no there's no kind of equivalent of that Although I do think maybe perhaps they should just go to theatres and act them out live <laughs> on tour. <laughs> that would be kind of weird. 
but um it's it's kind of surprising to me that it's taken so long to shake up the old traditional models of distribution and piracy and the way it's attacking things is actually the best way to do that and we're seeing now a lot of films released day and date to try and stop piracy um, the idea that a film comes out in the cinema and then six months later it comes out on DVD is being kind of slowly eroded away. Um, do you think that these changes are good for film? And do you think that any kind of pressure that piracy puts on those things is good as a kind of weird re end result? Or do you think ultimately it's leading to the death of kind of cinema exhibition? Uh, I think those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think it can be good for cinema in that it allows those films to get out there. So you have something like Beasts of No Nation, which is a film that uh, played in cinemas and the same day that it was released on Netflix. And so putting it in cinemas was essentially just so that it could get uh, awards consideration for awards it was not nominated for because of our opening discussion. Mm -hmm. and But also... Things like Chirac, the Spike Lee uh, musical, uh, which is currently playing in theatres, but was produced by Amazon Studios and will be on Amazon in like two weeks' time. So I think there you are taking films that probably would not get a very broad audience if they were released purely through the theatrical, you know, Something like Chirac, I could imagine not doing very, getting a limited release and then not doing very well. But now that it's going to be playing in on Amazon Prime, you know, millions of people will be able to watch it. Most of them maybe will not, but I think that it allows people that option, and so you know, provides people with more attention. But the the flip side of that is that the more people have op the option to watch something for a very low fee, just like buying it from iTunes or whatever in their homes the harder it will be to get people to get that excited about seeing a film in the cinema unless it's like a massive event like star wars mm, mm -hmm. going to moving over to um something else that's hugely affected by piracy um the world of television is changing much quicker than the world of film uh, in the sense that we are seeing a lot more subscription services popping up um, to the point that, you know, in maybe 10 years' time, you could see, you know, your average person spending a couple hundred quid a year on subscription services, kind of broken up over several different sites to watch exactly what they want to watch whenever they want to watch it. The idea at the minute that people in the UK pay a television licence, uh, as much as I absolutely love and adore the, the BBC, um, but the idea that you pay 120 or 30 quid for a television licence for... 95% stuff you don't watch is seems to be kind of going out the window and having Netflix or Amazon Prime or even more specifically things like Hulu and Mubi and um, having apps on uh, smart TVs and Apple TVs which have individual channel content seems to be the way that it's headed. Um, and that to me is a better way of doing things rather than saying, right, well, I'll subscribe to Sky example for like 50 pounds a month plus 100 quid to have it installed plus i have to have broadband and a phone with it as well yeah i mean that does make a lot more sense i think in terms of the way i mean this is stuff we talked about before like the idea of the fracturing audience and the fact that you are now getting whole channels that cater to specific niches because you no longer need 
get like 15 to 20 million viewers in the US to for a show to stay on the air it can stay on the air with less than a million viewers if those are the right viewers and I think that a movement towards what are essentially uh, just television apps that have a specific a specific kind of tone or style or genre that they cater to as opposed to the kind of the idea of the big four networks that will air lots of different shows in the hope that one will kind of take off mm. seems increasingly more likely. Um, I think that stuff like live sports will probably keep, are probably the only thing that will keep the big networks going just because they have the money. And also it's the sort of thing that you have to watch live because there's not a huge amount of points to just kind of time shifting a football match. Mm. Particularly, uh, yeah, like a big a Super Bowl or something like that. Everyone has to watch it at the same time, otherwise there's no point. And I think that uh, increasingly, you know, dramatic and narrative television is going to shift towards that kind of uh, fractured and niche-focused uh, uh, filmmaking. Mm. And it's it's every year is the same story, Game of Thrones is the most downloaded show of the year. But yet still, it brings in a huge amount of revenue and it you know, is, you know, costs a huge amount of money to make. Now, it's almost the point where Game of Thrones, for example, I'm just going to use Game of Thrones as an example, is becoming increasingly hard to watch that show legally for a price that consumers kind of see as fair as it were like i say your two choices in the uk are something like um subscribing to sky which is a you know a huge commitment to get the premium channels the boo of which uh, game of thrones carries um or to individually download the episodes from something like itunes which is not economically viable but with stuff like now tv which kind of sky have kind of brought off as a as an offshoot things like buying season passes for whole shows is a bit easier. Do you think that that's kind of like the happy medium or do you think that's where it's ultimately going to end up? Uh, I do feel like that will become a more prevalent thing to do, but I think it's also the thing that's interesting about Game of Thrones is it seems to me one of the key examples of a show that actually benefited from piracy because that was a show that started and it got good ratings, but not great, but, people really enthusiastic about it. So through people letting uh, other people use their HBO Go password or from illegally downloading it, people started watching it and got really into it. And so when the second season started, the ratings were like twice what they were in the first season and then they increased again by a couple of million in the third season. And it is very much a case where I think in that, that case, that show delivers twists and uh, horrifying images with such regularity that people feel like they have to what it's, it's it has they have to buy hbo in some form you know if it's just hbo now just because they need to be part of the conversation they can't have someone's head being crushed in monstrous fashion spoiled for them mm. uh, and i think that that is a kind of a rare example of that i think it's similar in a way to you know the way that netflix was the thing that eventually turned breaking bad into a phenomenon was that people caught it on other services and then tuned in when it went live but i think that there are very few shows that actually produce that level of excitement and those kind of week on week twists and so if a show isn't like that i think 
going towards a, a subscription service that allows people to kind of keep up to date with a show but not kind of pay for cable because also disconnecting from cable is a kind of a big thing that's been ink reaching uh, that more people have been doing in the US over the last couple of years that eats into it as well so something like now tv seems like the best way to for those companies to retain that audience so they can actually keep making money and afford to make these sort of programs mm. another example i could think of is something like comedy central we've talked before how in the last couple of years comedy central have just been producing you know hour after hour of amazing television content but there is only one way to watch it in the UK, which is to have a Sky package, which is, you know, what if you just want to watch the Comedy Central shows? And these are shows that, you know, things like Key and Peele and Broad City and Inside Amy Schumer aren't going to get big DVD releases over here. So it's, it's I, I find it unsurprising, very unsurprising that, that people turn to piracy to do these because it's this old model of uh of, of of kind of distribution is making it hard for people to kind of engage with content and the thing is we we learned from the we talked about it about three years ago i think with kevin spacey's keynote speech at the the edinburgh television awards and he said that the house of cards and the netflix model proves that if you give the consumers what they want when they want it for a price that's fair, they will pay it. Mm. Well, that goes back to the idea that piracy is essentially driven by impatience and people wanting a thing but not being able to have it at the moment they want. And I think clearly giving people access is the solution to that. Uh, and, and if that means... And I think that the problem is that certainly in the realm of film, the mechanisms that have been in place and have been in place for like nearly a hundred years in the way that films are put out mean that you it, people are very unlikely to want to change things to say okay Jurassic World is going to be in 3,000 something theatres on this day but it will also be available for people to watch at home you know that people aren't going to want to do that because also it, it removes to an extent the the kind of jockeying, jockeying for position to it. If Jurassic World had been available in homes the same weekend it was available in theatres, then it absolutely would not have broken like the opening uh, weekend record mm. because you couldn't then kind of factor in all the money from all of the different home releases who would have been charging less than the price of a full cinema ticket. Mm. What do you think like the state of uh, distribution and home rentals as it were will look like in the kind of 10 15 years do you think that the the time between um films being released and i'm talking kind of big films that will always be cinema events things like star wars and new jurassic worlds and things like that what do you think it'll look like do you think it'll be you know six weeks at the cinema and then you can kind of have it whenever you want it or do you think it'll remain the same and we'll kind of be stuck with this kind of it'll be on the cinema for an indeterminate amount of time depending on how it does and then it'll creep out on Blu-ray six months later, but it'll be available online to download when the first kind of disc goes to the printers from about three months onwards. I think that the model will remain largely unchanged. I think the window between a film coming out in the cinemas and the film being available to rent in some form will continue to shrink, but it's not going to drastically shrink. It may get down to like two months or something. 
mm. um, because of film films in general certainly big films tend to earn most of their money in the first like month or so mm. so i think if you start cre- allowing it to creep further down then that's probably not going to eke into the revenue too much uh, the biggest change i think because like you say those films are always going to be in big cinemas because that's the best that's the, the way the studio model is built you need to have big blockbusters in in, in theaters uh, the the big change and we're seeing it now is is with um independent releases small releases films that probably were never going to make a huge amount of money in theaters anyway but will find a an appreciative audience on VOD so films that are kind of thrillers or horror movies that have kind of a dedicated audience who are really interested in it they'll probably be the ones to benefit it from it more Mm. something that i saw coming in but it's kind of faded away a little bit i've not really seen that much of it in the last year or so is that ultraviolet thing which Mm. i can understand what like pisses people off about like being continually rinsed by studios and if you don't know what ultraviolet is it's you buy the film on blu-ray and you're given a password uh, to access it anytime you want digitally, which is awesome because, like, there was, a, I think, when I first got my Blu ray player, I was really excited. I got this Blu ray player and I went to kind of thought, well, I'll go and buy my first batch of Blu rays. And the first film I picked up was Jaws. And I was like, do you know what? Fuck this. I'm not going to buy this because I bought this on video. I bought it then on widescreen video, then I bought it on vanilla DVD. Then I bought a 25th anniversary DVD, and then now I'm going to buy it on Blu-ray. Now, one, that illustrates that I'm quite a gullible person who likes Jaws, <laughs> and probably the great market for, you know, home media. But, like, I think having the idea of having a digital file you will always own will kind of, I don't know, provide a bit more value to people who think that they, you know, I think you'd be more likely to buy a disc if it came with a digital copy included. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. It's similar to like buying vinyl. I like uh, buying vinyl, but I'm more I'm more likely to buy a vinyl record if it then says, "Oh, comes with like a free download code," because then I think, "Oh, I can just have it download that onto my iPhone," mm-hmm. because it gives me the opportunity to have it in the kind of the best uh, quality just in in my house. But then, if I want to listen to it while I'm driving into work or something, I have that option as well. Um, although I think Apple Music has kind of shifted the game in that regard now because it means that if I I can buy a record on vinyl and then if I need to listen to it, I just need to go into an app on my phone. So it's kind of a big thing. It's a different thing there. Um, but I think the problem with Ultraviolet is just that it's a very annoying setup that they have. It is, right. It's, it's, you have to kind of sign up for two different websites and then you have to link them. And it's, very, it's a counterintuitive setup. And I feel like if someone can come up with exactly the same idea, but simplify it and make sure that you don't have to go through all this rigmarole that is just intensely annoying, mm. then, yeah, the idea of giving people the option to legally buy a download code makes a huge amount of sense, especially if it is, like you say, something in, in HD and that you own forever. But, yeah, I think that it's it's kind of, it's going to take a while before you get to the, the situation where people will do that and you don't have, like, DRM and all that kind of bullshit. Mm. Yeah, I wonder if there'll ever be a situation where, you know, you go to the cinema and you pay, your, you know, a bit more, and after that you get it just instantly in your, you know, delivered 
via your the the magical internet in, onto your home device, you know, three months later or whatever in the quality, you know, in Blu-ray quality or whatever. I think it's it's there's that I think plays a big part in piracy. The fact that the idea that the studios make obscene amounts of money, mm-hmm. like actually obscene. If you think that, um, you know, Avatar or the new Star Wars made, you know, the GDP of a small country, it's, you know, just absurd. Um, and I think that if people felt a little less like they were getting more value for money, I think they might, their attitudes might slowly change when it comes to, you know, just clicking a couple of times and downloading something illegally. Or if you had like a situation where if you went in and you bought, you you went in and you paid for the ticket, but then you could use that ticket to get some sort of a discount on the DVD when it comes out. Mm. Something like that, where you could, uh, if you if you love a film and you want to own it, you can kind of um, uh, lessen the, the burden of buying it a second time. Not that a lot of people do buy physical media anymore, but I do think that something like that, which gives people an incentive, probably would have... Uh, would shift the game a little bit, at least, away from the idea of just downloading all the time. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, it is bad, and it does definitely affect, like, production on all levels, even at the highest level where you think people can kind of afford it. So don't do it, kids. It's it's bad. Um, unless it's Transformers, then just go for your life. Yeah, anything that can slowly uh, chip away at Michael Bay's career. We are tacitly in favour of. Yeah, we can't stop him, but we can slow him down. So that's piracy. We hope that we've uh, kind of assuaged your fears or worsened them, (laughs) either or. Uh, Take your pick. What have we got to recommend this week, Ed? Well, uh, I'm going to go something with thematically appropriate. I'm going to recommend Cutthroat Island, directed Hmm. by Rennie Harlid. No, I'm definitely not going to recommend that. Although I did watch half an hour of it on a hotel room TV over the holidays, and uh, it was made even worse by the fact they had motions moving on. So oh, wow. if, you ever, if you ever thought that Cutthroat Island couldn't get any worse, it can. Um, I'm going to recommend a film that has no relation to our topic, but is kind of related to a current obsession of a lot of people, which is Making a Murderer. I'm going to recommend the documentary series Paradise Lost, which was a trilogy of films directed by Joe Berlinger and the late Bruce Sinofsky, which charts the story of the West Memphis Three, who were three young boys who were arrested for the murder of three younger boys in uh, Arkansas, I want to say, in the early yeah. 90s and spent many years behind prison. And uh, Sinofsky and Berlinger spent the better part of 20 years categorizing, uh, uh, following the story of these these three boys from their arrest and uh, eventual conviction through various appeals to save them. And it's a really fascinating look at the injustices of the uh, of the American justice system, although focused around three boys who didn't do it, as opposed to making a murderer, which I think is pretty clearly about a guy who did do it, <laughs> but who got a rough ride. And it is also self-reflexive in a way that I find really fascinating in that each subsequent film in the series has to contend with the effect that the previous film had on the West Memphis Three case. In that case, turning it into the most depressing version of the Up series. Mm, mm. It's they're kind of hard to get a hold of the uh, the Paradise Lost films. Um, I, I'm not excusing anyone who wants to pirate them, but they're kind of tough to get hold of. But if you can get hold of them, they are pretty amazing. Um, especially since Part Two 
is kind of very bad uh, for reasons I won't go into to spoil it, but it's kind of cool to watch them, the documentary makers, kind of talk about how they did kind of make a bit of a mistake with number two, which is kind of interesting. But also on the back of Ed's recommendation, if you want a kind of an overview of those films, there's a film called West of Memphis, which was produced by Peter Jackson, which came out a few years ago, which um, doesn't work as a replacement for uh, Paradise Lost films, but they kind of a good primer if you wanted to uh, take the plunge. Yeah, um, and in terms of availability, the Paradise Lost series in the US is available on uh, Amazon Prime and I think on HBO Go because it's an HBO uh, production. Mm, that's, where it gets, that's where it gets murky over here. Yeah, so... Uh, so def- it's, it's it's available in some form but yeah the, uh, Western Memphis is a very good overview so if you want to watch something that's a little more dip- dispassionate and which doesn't get uh, lost in the details of of the of the case and the more emotive qualities around it then Western Memphis is, is a good kind of uh, catch-all mm, cool man I'm going to recommend something spurred on by the Oscar snub they received uh, talking about Creed, which uh, we've both seen. And it's a bloody marvelous piece of work, and shamefully underrepresented at this year's Oscars. Although Sylvester Stallone does get a uh, much deserved nod, there are several other thing- things about the film that are amazing that deserve a bit more recognition. One of which is Ryan Coogler's direction, and I'm going to recommend his debut film, Fruitvale Station, uh, which came out a couple of years ago, uh, and also stars Michael B. Jordan as Oscar Grant, who was, uh, for those of you who don't know, he was uh, a kind of a kid who was uh, getting from a New Year's Eve party, which was kind of a bit of a blowout, and was on a train, was on an altercation on a train, and was, for all intents and purposes, murdered by a police officer uh, in full view of a whole train full of people, and several people filmed it on their phones. And the film is kind of a really kind of great look at uh, Oscar Grant's last day uh, alive and what he did leading up to those fateful events and it is a film that has kind of like a real energy to it and a real intensity to it and kind of did put down a marker for Kugler as a real talent and I think with him going on to direct the new Black Panther film and plus the kind of props he's getting for greed uh, the future is bright for that young man yeah, that's a that's a fantastic film. As is Creed. I think he's a hugely exciting talent, and I'm glad that he is getting uh, some of the support that uh, you know, uh, like we're saying, uh, filmmakers who are kind of people of color don't tend to get. So the the opportunities he's being afforded are very exciting to me. Hmm. Hmm. Cool. That's a lot for this week, everybody. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes uh, or Stitcher or Player FM and subscribe. If you really liked it, leave us a review and it helps other people to find us. You can find us on Twitter, you can find us on Facebook and all that other good stuff. And we'll be back next week with something else entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. me.